Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. So um, I'd like to welcome everyone to Sydney Ideas and let me start by acknowledging the uh, traditional owners of the land on which we're meeting today, the Gadigal people of the Aurora Nation, and pay our respects to their elders past, present and future. My name is Robin Ward. I'm a, the Executive Dean of the Faculty of Medicine and Health here at the University of Sydney and I'll be chairing tonight's conversation and we do have a great set of speakers lined up for you and hopefully you're going to enjoy the interactive session that will follow. So I'm just going to say a couple of words about genomics. Um, Genomics and, and genetics and DNA are a bit of a passion of mine and I just thought I'd tell you a couple of fast facts. I know many people in the audience perhaps uh, know a lot about this area, but for those who don't, I thought I'd give you some intriguing facts that maybe you can think on as you hear the speakers. So first of all, um, inside our body there's 37 trillion cells and every cell contains a strand of DNA which is about um, two metres long, so a little bit shorter than me. And so if you lined up all the DNA in your body and uh, it would go around the solar system twice. So that's a lot of information inside the human body. And so it's a little wonder that people were pretty fascinated by DNA and what those three billion base pairs are actually doing inside our body and hence invested an extraordinary amount of effort to generate the first reference genome. And that reference genome cost $300 million to generate. It took many, many years. It took 3,000 scientists from all over the world. And in 2001, the first draft of the human genome was published with great um, excitement. At that stage, people thought there were about 140,000 genes inside that, that remarkable set of coding. Um, it subsequently turned out that they were wrong on that count and there was probably only about 30,000 genes. The DNA sequence also contained huge amounts of what's called uh, DNA dark matter, which is all this junk DNA that is interspersed between our genes, which probably has a lot more to do with who we are and what we look like and the diseases we get than the actual genes themselves. But that's a pretty radical thought. And the reason I have that radical thought comes back to the fact that uh, what is compressing that DNA inside cells, and that is um, the histones and other compaction matter that actually exists that get the DNA tightly packed inside cells. And that DNA second or fifth code of the DNA is epigenetics. And epigenetics is really a, another layer which controls the way we express genes, that's the RNA, the transcript, the proteins we produce, the metabolome, all the other omics that you might have heard about in your travels. So that little story was really just to illustrate that we are only at the very, very beginning of understanding genomics. And although there was a huge amount of excitement over the last few years, particularly as the sequencing of DNA has become so much cheaper, it doesn't cost $300 million anymore, it only costs about $1,500 to generate a, a genomic sequence, a DNA sequence. But what we're learning as we le learn more about that actual DNA sequence is it really explains only a tiny fraction of who we are, what we turn out like, what our kids look like, what diseases we get, and how we interact with the environment. And so that's massively exciting. It's typical of science. Every time you think you've discovered something, you only learn how much you don't actually understand. So what our speakers today are going to talk about is what we know about genomics and genetics now. But as they're talking, I'm going to ask you to also um, display some scepticism around what genomics um, will deliver for us and understand there's a lot of missing pieces of information that have yet to be discovered. And that's why um, some of the promise around genomics being able to cure every disease and we'll have a drug for every genomic cause of disease um, is, is really yet not within reach. 
And so listen to the talks with scepticism, but also listen to them with the marvel of people who have been able to navigate this area. And we've got two fabulous speakers and four fantastic panellists who know a lot about genomics and are going to present to you a lot of different perspectives on genomics tonight. So I hope you'll enjoy uh, what's going to happen in the next hour or so. So let me, without further ado, uh, introduce the first speaker. And the first speaker is uh, Sandro Galea. Professor Sandro Galea is a physician, epidemiologist, author. He's the Dean and Robert A. Knox Professor at Boston University of Public Health. Sandro is regarded as one of the most important and innovative voices in American health and medicine. He's been named one of Time Medicine's epidemiological innovators and has been listed as one of the world's most influential scientific minds. Welcome, Sandro. Good evening. Thank you all for uh, being here. Thank you, Dean Ward, for, that, um, for inviting me and for that kind introduction and to the Prevention Center at Sydney for um, arranging my visit here. So I... Um, I'm going to ask this one question, which is, can precision medicine improve population health? I um, serve as dean of the School of Public Health. I was attracted. My, my entire professional life has been in health. And as far as I'm concerned, the higher order value should be, can we improve the health of populations? I am not going to address whether precision medicine has value in discovery science. My answer to that is yes, absolutely. I'm not going to talk about whether or not precision medicine can help in rare cases of disease and can help clinical, clinical management of rare disease. The answer to that is also absolutely. What I really care about is, can precision medicine improve the health of populations? So, let me start with a definition. What do I mean by improved population health? What I mean by improved population health is very simple. I mean, is there any measurable, any improvement in mortality or morbidity that is measurable in population data? Do we make people healthier in whole populations? That's the question. So, how do we address the question? Let's start with the definition of precision medicine. So, precision medicine, medical care decide to optimize efficiency or therapeutic benefit for particular groups of patients especially using genetic or molecular profiling. And you heard from Dean Ward this uh, introduction around genomics, and I think that's entirely correct. I think genomic medicine is inextricable from precision medicine as currently construed. So I am here then discussing precision medicine as focusing on human genomic medicine, and I'm making one other distinction by using the word human, because genomic medicine as applied to the genomics of bacteria has yielded immense benefits to populations. I'm here interested in human genomic medicine, so precision medicine with that definition. And I actually don't think that that definition is so unusual, because in fact, some of the, most, the biggest proponents of precision medicine, like Francis Collins, who's currently the head of the NIH in the United States, this is his quote from 1999, he said, since the 1970s, nearly all avenues of biomedical research have led to the gene. And Francis Collins was essential in the human genome project that ultimately launched a thousand ships, including the precision medicine ship. So the question then is, the question is, has preci have precision approaches improved population health? That's our ultimate question. So to skip to the answer, my answer is not on the evidence. And let me make a case why that's the case. Let me go back to the definition of precision medicine. Medical care designed to optimize efficiency or therapeutic benefits. So let's break that apart and let us look at therapeutics and let us look at diagnostics, which are those are the two areas which genomic medical approaches, genomic or molecular medical approaches, are supposed to be helping in a precision medicine agenda. So let's start with therapeutics. Well, there's many different ways of explaining this, many different ways of making the case that um, precision medicine, genomic precision medicine, is not improving population health. But perhaps one easy way of doing this is to ask a simple question. What is a gene for cancer? Now, I ask that question, and I could do a show of hands, and if we're doing a class, I would get a show of hands. I could get you all to think about it. Um, um, but generally speaking, when I ask that question, apart from sort of people scratching their head, the answer I get is BRCA1. We've all heard about BRCA1 as a gene, breast cancer, Angelina Jolie, and all that, right? BRCA1 is undoubtedly the most discussed the sort of case study about a gene for cancer. The problem with BRCA1 is as follows. It actually had nothing to do 
with the precision medicine movement. It actually was identified well beyond before the Human Genome Project started. It involves about 5% of breast cancers. There's no treatment for it, and there's no clear molecular mechanism. Now, you might say, okay, well, it's cancer. Cancer is a hard disease to treat. Well, let's take a different approach. Instead of asking, what is a gene for cancer? Let's ask this question. What is a virus for cancer? Well, what are viruses for cancers? Let's start with HPV and cancer. HPV causes 80% of cervical cancer. We know that. It has led to vaccine development that can save about 300,000 women a year from cervical cancer. That's by contrast between HPV and BRCA1, which is the most commonly discussed gene for cancer. How about hepatitis B? Hepatitis B causes 80% of hepatic adenocarcinoma. It has led to vaccine development. It can save 800,000 people a year who die from liver cancer. And we know that in Taiwan, a place where vaccine has been offered since the 1980s, it's resulted in about 75% risk reduction. So on the face of it, the most notable success of genomic precision medicine in the area of therapeutics in terms of cancer really is very, very small compared with other gigantic successes at the same time in a non-genomic world. So that's the therapeutic world. Now, how about diagnostics? Let's talk about diagnostics. So has genetic and molecular profiling very much helped our diagnostics? There are many ways of saying this as well. You've all heard about um, genetic risk profiles and on and on and on. And um, the truth of the matter is that this genetic risk profiling hasn't done very much. This is one particular example of a very large megawatts analysis, genetic architecture of type 2 diabetes, which concludes large-scale sequencing does not support the idea that lower-frequency variants have a major role in predisposition to type 2 diabetes. In the biggest trial that was done on this, which is the SHIVA trial, it really showed very little evidence for efficacy of molecular targeting versus regular treatment at physician's office of treatment physician's choice, which essentially says the physician asks you your family history. And that is pretty well just as good as the genomic molecular profiling. Here's the conclusion of the, of the Shiva trial. The clinical usefulness of large-scale genomic testing has not been formally shown, which is very nice academic speak for saying our trial showed nothing. Um, um, so having said all this, what is the biggest success of genomic medicine in the realm of population health? The biggest success of genomic medicine in the realm of population health probably is imatinib, which is Gleevec. Gleevec is a wonder drug. It is a drug that has reduced mortality from CML, chronic myeloid leukemia, extraordinarily. It has taken five-year survival from CML from 95% to 50%. Prior to imatinib, the US had about 3,000 deaths a year from CML. Now, we're down to about 1,000 deaths a year. So, so Gleevec saves about 2,000 lives a year. And I want to be clear, this is a success story of genomic precision medicine. It is probably the biggest success story of genomic precision medicine. We're saving about 2,000 lives a year. Okay, well, let's put that in context. Let's put that in context. This is US mortality and life expectancy. Mortality is the blue line going down. Life expectancy is the red line going up. A lot of that is due to the reduction in mortality from cardiovascular diseases. That's the gray um, sort of curve at the bottom. Cerebrovascular disease is the blue curve at the top. And a lot of that is because we stopped smoking. This is the US, our smoking report, Surgeon General report, anti-smoking TV ads, start of non-smoker rights movements. And that has resulted in an age-adjusted mortality rate in the US where we have 820,000 fewer deaths than we had um, uh, about 40 years ago. 820,000 fewer deaths, which is, of course, in contrast with the biggest success of genomic medicine, which is Gleevec, which is 2,000 fewer deaths. So, having said all that, and you know, I could go on and on, try to make this case, and uh, you know, we, we could debate it, but why is it that genomic precision medicine has not worked? And I think there are three reasons for that, and I think these three reasons are often forgotten in the public discussion about the hype use the term that's used in the title of the seminar, around precision medicine. Number one, biology is complex. Biology is complex. Genes, you heard from Dean Ward, there are a lot of genes. And these genes, they matter relatively little as a single gene. That ultimately the production of health, there is no question that genes matter for our health. The issue is that a lot of genes matter very, very little 
and the simple quest for simple genetic solutions, which is ultimately what, genetic, what genomic precision medicine is predicated on, is probably not going to yield very much. There are many variants, this is actually genetic variants for blood pressure, with tiny, tiny effects. And ultimately, the production of non-communicable disease, chronic diseases like cancer, say cardiovascular disease, are multi-mechanism disease and they have predictable resistance and, and variable penetrance. That is not going to make for identifying of genomic and molecular targeting that is going to improve the health of populations. And all of that is overlaid with the overwhelming role of behavior in shaping chronic disease. This looks at the relative risk of death for men and women from prostate cancer for men, women, liver, um, colon, rectum, liver, breast, and uterus, as associated with obesity, with enormous relative risks of death just from one health behavior, obesity. So number one, one the production of disease is complex. <coughs> number two, <coughs> the promise of genomic precision medicine is that we're going to identify, remember, genomic and molecular approaches to improve medicine. That's what the definition was that I showed you at the beginning. <coughs> that suggests that we're going to be able to improve the health of the individual, but that health of the individual, remember I said at the beginning, I'm not going to comment on the fact that precision medicine can have utility for the treatment, individual treatment of rare, unusual diseases, right? I said at the beginning, I'm not talking about that, and I said the answer to that is yes. But that is very different than health in populations. And let me just show you one graph to illustrate that point. This is a genotype score and the cumulative incidence of diabetes. Now, when you see this, you see the more genotype score you have, the more uh, cumulative incidence of diabetes, right? It's a classic dose-response relationship. And when you see something like this, you might say, what's the first question you ask yourself? Well, you say, hmm, I wonder what my, cumulative uh, what my genotype score is, right? Because you look at this, and we're all human. We say, huh, look at that. And then you remember five minutes ago, I said, when I showed you the paper about diabetes, that actually genotyping of diabetes doesn't really help us diagnose anything. But now you're looking at this and you're like, how is that possible? Maybe he was wrong, maybe he's contradicting himself. I'm not, because this graph is a population graph. At the population level, more genotype score is more diabetes. But let's take this graph from the same paper and change it. Genotype score is now on the x-axis, and now you see two population density curves. Those are the population density curves of people with and without diabetes. And what do you see when you look at those curves? that they're almost directly overlapping. And now you realize that at the individual level, whether you're knowing whether you're on the gray curve or the black curve, diabetes or no diabetes, knowing your genotype score does very little for you. So reason one, or reason two is we conflate individual population. Reason three, part of the rubric of genomic precision medicine is that it is going to result in change in individual behavior. That if we know our genome, if we know what our genes are characterized as, we are going to change behavior. And this has been said again and again and again. I can refer you to dozens and dozens of paper about precision medicine that say over and over again, once you know your genes, you are going to behave differently. And the answer to that is, that's nonsense. It's actually not true. It is not true. We are human. We are terrible. We behave badly. And knowing that my genes predispose me, I'm still going to behave badly. And you know what? So are you. Um, and this is just one paper that says that, that concludes expectations to communicating DNA-based risk estimate changes behavior. Again, this is a lovely scientific language, is not supported by existing evidence, which is the same thing as saying it's nonsense. Okay, so you can say, all right, you're an academic, and one of the joys of being an academic is you can say all sorts of things and they have no consequence. Um, um, but I think this discussion is not just academic. There are reasons why this matters. Why does it matter? Number one, as we focus on genomic precision medicine, and I'm not sp uh, spending time here talking about uh, much about costs. Uh, my colleague will uh, talk afterwards about costs. Um, we, are, we are essentially um, you know, fiddling while Rome burns. Um, uh, it is a compelling distraction from many other issues. Let me just lean on the American example for a second because I happen to live in the United States. This is America. This is our life expectancy. Our life expectancy in the United States has fallen behind other high-income countries by about five years in the past 30 to 40 years. We've lost life expectancy every year for the past three years. This is the country that actually really started precision medicine and has inve in invested billions in precision medicine. So therefore, it seems to me like with a picture like that, saying that we're gonna spend all our 
discovery science money on precision medicine when the logic is that it's not going to improve the health of populations is simply wrong. That's argument one. Argument two, which is builds on argument one, is resource allocation. This is what's happening in publication world. The blue line is population health, the red line is personalized individual precision medicine, which roughly means the same thing. So if any of you in the audience are actually interested in a career in population health, as I am, good luck to you, because you are, you, we are just getting beaten by precision medicine, and you can try to figure out why, given everything I'm saying. Um, this is the NIH funding, our largest funder, United States National Institutes of Health. 0.6% um, of awards had the words population or public in the title, and everything else was not. And th this is um, uh, NIH funding for genetics genomic um, uh, work versus population or public health. That makes this not, this makes this a real distraction. Now, but you're saying, okay, 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 but there were lives saved. I talked about Gleevec, right? I did talk about Gleevec. Gleevec, which saves, remember, 2,000 lives in the USA a year, costs about $100,000 per year, about a million dollars per life saved. And without getting into the economics, as I said, my colleagues will talk about that, I simply want to point out that the 2,000 lives a year saved by Gleevec is the equivalent of the 2,000 lives a year we save by making babies sleep on their back, reducing sudden infant death syndrome, and that costs us nothing. That's the same population health effect of Gleevec, which I said is a wonder drug. It really is. And if you have CML, you want to be able to be given Gleevec. That's okay, but on a population level, that's the equivalent. And my last point, why does this matter? Why does this matter? And uh, you know, I come back to hype. I'm using the word hype, which was not my word. It's what the organizers put in the title. Um, but I do think that there is this notion of hype over hope. And that um, we have hyped precision medicine to an extent that it has created false hope and ultimately runs against our interests in improving the health of populations. So I'll, I'll, I'll use a, a quote that I think illustrates roughly how this feels, right? That the proponents of precision medicine recognize that it's challenging. I know this is a formidable technical task. One may not be accomplished before the end of the century. Yet, current technology has attained a level of sophistication where it's reasonable for us to begin this effort. It will take years, probably decades of effort on many fronts. There will be failures and setbacks, just as there will be successes and breakthroughs. And as we proceed, we must remain constant. But isn't it worth every investment necessary? We know it is, right? That's, that is the exhortation to precision medicine, what it often feels like. That says, yes, we know there are challenges. Yes, we've invested lots of money in the past 20 years. Yes, it hasn't really made a difference, but surely it's worth it. And we as humans, we like stirring words, right? Like when you read this, I'm ending with this slide on purpose, because you read this and you're like, okay, 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 even if you're right, but surely shouldn't we do this? Do you know who said this? Anybody? This is Ronald Reagan speaking about the Star Wars space program. <laughs> That's all I have. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, well, we're off to a great start, and um, let me introduce our, our next speaker. We have Professor Sarah Wordsworth. Sarah is the Professor of Health Economics at the University of Oxford. She has almost 25 years of experience in the evaluation of costs and benefits of health te care technologies. Since 2003, she has led a research program on the economics of genetic and genomic technologies and personalised medicine. Welcome, Sarah. Good evening, and thank you for your kind introduction, Robin. Um, so, the title of my talk is Who Pays and Who Benefits? The Economics of Precision Medicine. So as an economist, I'm interested in resource allocation and how best, as, as a member of society, how we should allocate our scarce resources. So in terms of the overview of the presentation, um, in answering my original question, I will pose three more questions. Typical academic, more questions than answers. Um, so the first question is, what economic evidence do we currently have for the use of precision medicine? Does it benefit patients and does it provide value for money for healthcare systems? What evidence do we actually have at the moment, economic evidence, and how good is that evidence? Is it high quality or not? And then how can we produce the evidence that we may still need in the future? Now, I start very much from the point of thinking about precision medicine in terms of genomic testing. And there is lots and lots of hype about different testing technologies, 
and the most recent being whole genome sequencing, where the entire genome is sequenced rather than um, just segments. Uh, much of my work at the moment is around the area of whole genome sequencing. So in terms of some potential benefits from sequencing technologies such as whole genome sequencing, there are four areas that we could potentially look at. The first is diagnosis. Does whole genome sequencing and similar technologies improve the diagnostic yield? And I think here in some conditions, some disorders, the answer is yes. But what happens in the case of, of for instance, rare diseases where a diagnosis is found that wasn't previously discovered, where there isn't actually treatment available? What questions does this raise for health economists, ethicists, and lots of other um, stakeholders? But what if there is a treatment available? Can this treatment that's become as a result of having sequencing, can it reduce or avoid adverse events? Does the hype around the patient getting the right treatment at the right time, does that really exist in reality? We can think about disease prevention, and interestingly, I also use a diabetes example here. Does it lead to lifestyle changes? So if you're diagnosed with being at higher risk of diabetes compared to your peers, does it change your does it change your lifestyle? And actually, as an economist, how would you try and quantify any potential changes or not? That's really difficult to get a handle on. And finally, an area that we think about as economists is what potential benefits are sequencing from macroeconomic level? So with new technologies, particularly expensive technologies, um, is there a benefit to the economy bringing in um, um, pharmaceutical companies into the, into the country, because if you've got lots of sequencing happening, does that improve the um, chances that drug companies will come and conduct their trials in your country? So these are potential benefits of sequencing. So what about the other side of the equation? What about the costs? So we heard from Robin that initially it was really, really expensive con to conduct the sequencing, and over time the costs have certainly reduced massively. Um, and there's lots and lots of hype about the um, $1,000 genome. But are we actually there yet? And I, I would argue that probably we aren't there quite yet. Um, we're getting close to this figure, um, but most of the estimates are just looking at the sequencing components alone. They aren't looking at um, other components. So analyzing the data that comes from the sequencing is often not included in estimates. So the figure of $1,000, I think at the moment it's still still some way off. And whose costs are we interested in? Are we interested in individuals paying for sequencing? Are we interested in the costs incurred by the government and healthcare providers more generally? Are we interested in cost society? Because as members of society, we are stakeholders in decisions being made about different healthcare interventions. And one point I would like to press is that sequencing is more likely to be affordable if it's conducted at scale. So small cell sequencing using expensive technologies in individual hospitals is unlikely to be cost effective. You need large numbers, you need economies of scale for this to, for this to be affordable. So there, these are some of the issues you might like to think about in terms of benefits and the costs of sequencing technologies, but what about the evidence? So if we think about medicines, for instance, drugs, there are thousands and thousands of economic studies published every year in high-impact economics, policy, and medical journals, literally thousands every year. So what we were interested in was, well, what's the parallel here? How many publications are published in the area of sequencing? So we looked at publications in um, whole exome and whole genome sequencing. So these are the most recent technologies. And a paper that we published last year showed that actually there were only 36 publications ever. So not just in 12 months, ever. Compare that to medicines. Far fewer. And this isn't just because the newer technologies, it's also because there's less evidence out there, there are less economic studies carried out. So these 36 studies, most of them were in the area of neurological development. Most of them were very small sample sizes, some as small as 20 or 30 patients. There was very little detail in the work. 
Yeah. So if you want to try and interrogate the methods, it was quite difficult to do so. And most of them were not clinical trial-based. They were small cohort studies without a comparator. Now, in terms of evidence of the benefits of sequencing, we looked at the potential benefits in terms of health benefits and non-health benefits. And going back to an earlier point I made about um, diagnosis, which may not lead to a treatment, we found that there was quite a lot of concern and debate about using sequencing if there wasn't a treatment available, and how we try and handle, as economists, non-health outcomes, such as the value of knowing. It's much more straightforward trying to value a health outcome where it saves someone's life or reduces um, side effects of a drug. It's more difficult when it's the value of knowing that you're at risk of a particular condition. And as economists, we're very much um, trying to think about how to handle this. So at the mo moment, there isn't much evidence on the cost-effectiveness of using most advanced sequencing technologies. Those that have been conducted, the studies tend to suggest that sequencing is effective and cost-effective and potentially cost-saving. As I said, most of the studies are quite small, small scale. Now, one solution to this could be to conduct much bigger studies, big cohort studies. And internationally, there are several ongoing and completed studies in the area of sequencing. So I've been involved in one of them, which is the UK 100,000 Genomes Project, which finished sequencing in December 2018. And this was a project which sequenced over 85,000 individuals in the context of the National Health Service. So these were all patients with either a rare disease or cancer. They were not healthy individuals, they were not um, members of the general public, they were patients. <coughs> and alongside the sequencing data, information was also collected on their hospital episodes, primary care visits, um, pharmaceutical um, interventions, also links to disease registries, so the cancer registry, for example, so lots and lots of linkage and a huge amount of data being collected. And at the moment, the UK is, uh, uh, is looking at this data and trying to make sense of whether or not the sequencing has been beneficial for patients. But what it has found um, is a diagnostic yield of using whole genome sequencing has been... Um, between one in, one in three and one in five, so a higher diagnostic yield compared to less advanced sequencing technologies. Now, in terms of whether sequencing and diagnostic yield has led to improvement in health, I think it's too short-term to be able to give an answer to that, and it's a long-term long question. But there are also other projects that are ongoing. There are a couple here in Australia. There's a very large one in the US which is essentially sequencing healthy um, individuals, or about to st start sequencing healthy individuals, and several across Europe and in China. So going back to the, to the 100,000 Genomes Project, well, as I said, it finished sequencing in December 2018. The sequencing has continued, so it's ongoing. So the samples, the patient sample samples have been collected in over 120,000 individuals. This is large scale, it's a big effort for the health service. Um, and nearly 110,000 genomes have now been sequenced. And as you can see, most of these have been in rare disease rather than cancer. There's also a big research element to this. So there are nearly 2,500 researchers internationally who are involved in this initiative, who are interested in using the data to try and make sense of sequencing at scale in their own population. So in terms of the health economics aspect of this, so bearing in mind, as I said, we don't have much uh, evidence on the effects of cost-effectiveness of whole genome sequencing at the moment. These large-scale initiatives do provide the opportunity to provide the much-needed evidence that we need. And one of the things I looked at is the hospital episode statistics data connected to the 100,000 Genomes Project. And this is just an example of one patient. This is, one, um, this is one young girl who had genomic sequencing, she had whole genome sequencing, and what we looked at was her diagnostic odyssey. 
So we looked at her journey before she had whole genome sequencing and then after. So all the information at the top is the inpatient admissions for this child, starting September 2011 up to um, February 2016. And at the bottom are all the different outpatient visits. And what you see here is a very common pattern with children and adults with rare disease, is they move around from different specialties. At some point, diagnosis might be made, but it can take a long time to get there. And one of the potential benefits of using whole genome sequencing early is it may make a diagnosis earlier. So, so what, we tried to what we tried to figure out was at what point whole genome sequencing could have been done earlier in the patient pathway and a diagnosis being made. Um, and some early estimates suggest that diagnosis for some children could have been made between five and seven years earlier. Um, but the project is still very much ongoing. There's lots of data to collect. Um, for many of the patients, treatments aren't available at the moment. So even though diagnosis can be made, there is no treatment. So how do we handle that? So I have a few take-home messages before we move towards the panel. Well, I think precision medicine does show promise. Um, I think I'm maybe a little less skeptical than my colleague, um, but I'm still, I'm, I would say I'm cautious. As an economist, I've got more questions than I have answers. So in terms of costing these new sequencing technologies, I think we've got a good handle on that. Increasingly, we know how much they cost, right down to the nearest dollar. I'm less confident that we understand what the benefits are of sequencing. I think for this, we need much more longer-term evidence and to follow the patients over time. And most of these large-scale sequencing initiatives are following the patients over time, so we can collect that much-needed information. But I think it's vital that we have long-term information, not just on the benefits, but the costs of sequencing, any downstream consequences for patients in the future. There's lots of data out there that's been routinely collected in different healthcare systems, and I think we should be using that and link it to the genomic tests. And I think my final point is very much a call for action, is trying to work together across different countries, because many economists and other researchers are exa asking exactly the same questions, and I think if we work together and combine our data sources and our and ideas, we might be able to answer the question definitively about whether precision medicine is effective and cost-effective for our populations. And that's my bell signaling. <laughs> Thank you. So, there are my acknowledgements. Um, I'm very grateful to the University of Sydney who invited me out here and lots of support while I've been here. And my team in Oxford who do lots of the work to produce slides and also people at Genomics England um, and NHS England um, who between them are trying to figure out the landscape of moving um, whole genome sequence into routine care in the UK. Thank you. So I might just ask the um, panel members to join me here on the um, couch or chairs. So first there on my far left, we have Associate Professor Ainsley Newson, who's an authority on the ethical issues that arise in genomics and personalised medicine. Her work critically considers how genomic technologies should be used well in both clinical and population health settings. And next to her is Professor Chris Samasarian, who is an internationally renowned cardiologist and scientist. He's had roles as a professor at the university, a clinician at the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, and head of the Molecular Cardiology Program at the Centenary Institute. So Ainsley, I might just ask you a question to start with. We've heard uh, two uh, different views on this topic, and I just wondered what your thoughts were about uh, economic evidence and uh, how you think the ethics around e economics and spend um, balanced against the evidence, the clinical evidence of, of benefit and otherwise. So you want me to solve the whole problem? That would be fine. I'm happy to do that. We can go home early okay, if, if great. we can solve I'll, it. I'll get right on it. Uh, thank you. So I think what we saw is two very impassioned presentations that give, I think, complementary, not necessarily conflicting uh, versions of this story. I think we're, what are we driving at? What are we working towards? And I think Sandra's presentation pointed out how 
precision medicine doesn't yet stand up in a population context, and I don't think Sarah would disagree with that. Sarah's work looks very carefully at particular instances where precision techniques can be used and is showing value in those environments. So my question as an ethicist is, well, what is the problem that we're trying to solve? And in doing that, we need to always compare apples with apples and be clear conceptually about what it is we're talking about. So what are we asking of precision medicine? Are we asking, is it appropriate to ask precision medicine to solve problems for the whole population? Um, is it appropriate to stack up what it's achieved so far with other interventions? Is that a fair comparison? And, but at the same time, I often describe myself as a critical friend of technologies like this because I believe that precision medicine does suffer from a hype problem. And I see hype in a term, I define it in a, a more pejorative way, in that it is overemphasizing the utility of a technology before it's ready. And we know that that can lead to problems because it can lead to overinvestment, it can lead to um, ideas in the population that a technology can do more than it can actually do at this time. And then it can lead to premature implementation. And then we also know once something's in a healthcare system, it's very hard to get it out again. That's probably enough for now. I haven't solved the problem. I've just lobbed in loads good, of extra questions. Sorry good, about that. Good opening bat. Okay, Chris, now you're a clinician. You, you're very skilled in, in genetics and genomics. Um, I'm not going to ask you an oncology question. I'm <laughs> going to ask you a cardiology question. Um, so can you tell us your perspective on taking on board the two talks you've just heard because you're dealing with the individual patient and what's your perspective about the current place of genomics in routine clinical care? Thanks, Robin. So um, my focus is, uh, as a cardiologist, I focus on young people with heart disease. So not blood pressure, cholesterol, smoking, all that sort of stuff. But these are young people, teenagers with heart muscle problems or heart rhythm problems, or very sadly, young people who die suddenly playing football or on a basketball court. So I see very targeted population of young people and their families. And I use precision medicine every day. Um, I use genomics and genetics to target my diagnosis and my treatment in these patients. So by that I mean uh, it's a very specific individual thing. It's part of the talk from Dr. Galea where he said he agrees that it's okay for rare diseases and I think that's true. And so what we do in these young pa pa patients is use genetics to specifically pinpoint the cause of disease. And if you can specifically pinpoint the cause of disease, you can then use that information to choose your medications and therapies and even initiate prevention strategies. So I fully understand that there's been a lot of hype about precision medicine, but at the individual level, the patients I see every day, there are many benefits in terms of using that genomic information to improve the care of the patient, which I think the bottom line of all our discussion today is anything we do in medicine, we always balance the benefits and the harms. And in my clinics, the benefits far outweigh the harms in terms of using that genetic information to help me diagnose and treat disease. And so as a clinician, how do you um, explain the, the nuancing of that in the sense of the difference between the individual patient and what we heard from, from Sandro, which is around population benefit and, and extrapolation beyond the individual to benefit to large populations? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of confusion in the community about uh, genomic medicine and, you know, it's one thing to do a, uh, at a population level genetic testing or genomic evaluation where you're not targeting it to a particular disease in a patient. What I'm talking about is individual patients where we, that genetic information helps me to decide how to treat that patient, how to prevent disease. You know, one of the scenarios I work in is in young people who die suddenly and one in two young people who die suddenly in Australia have no cause identified at post-mortem. And the parents ask a thousand questions when they see me and talk to me and are in tears and they ask, you know, out of the million questions they ask, they all ask, why did my son or daughter die suddenly out of the blue? And how can we prevent this happening to anyone else in my family? And it, what we can do is use that molecular autopsy, the blood from the post-mortem to find the gene, the abnormality which caused the disease and use that information in the living relatives to identify who's at risk 
and initiate treatment and prevention strategies. So I think we're all saying the same thing on this panel, which is we're looking at different population targets. I'm talking more about individual patients, the patients sitting in front of me, whereas Dr. Galera and Dr. Wordsworth are really talking more about populations of people where the benefits of genomic testing, I think, uh, have a lot to go in terms of uh, showing real benefit. And I, and I actually agree with both speakers. Ainsley. I was just going to add to Chris's comment um, that ultimately what we're talking about here is when it's appropriate to invest and when is, when is something mature enough to scale up. And I think what we're seeing at the moment is a, a large and increasing selection of clinical scenarios where this technology is making a difference. And there is some economic evidence emerging, for example, in sequencing in NICU environments, neonatal intensive care units. But um, ultimately, this technology is not at a stage for population use for all the reasons that Professor Galea uh, explained. But I think we also have to sometimes remember that a population is not a completely separate entity from individuals. It is comprised of individuals. And so how do we, how do we put those two things against each other, I think? Or how do we, how do we consider those in a, in a collaborative way so that we don't end up killing off the whole personalised medicine project by saying that it's failed before it's been allowed to start, but at the same time, not letting it get away with more than it's capable of. So Sandro, what do you think about that? You've showed us those um, terrifying, I think $190,000 investment in the NIH grant on population and then whatever it was, $33 billion in, uh, in, the, um, in all the other whiz-bang technology. And I guess what's going to happen out of this, if I was predicting anything, was you know genomics is going to fall short of people's expectations. Um, you're already showing that. And so the next thing will be the transcriptome and the epigenome and the metabolome and the proteome. And that should take us out for a few more centuries. Unfortunately, we won't be here by then, but um, I don't see any sort of uh, reprieve for, for, for you in the NIH funding scheme unless you do something differently. So how are you going to make the case more in a more compelling way? <laughs> well, my answer to that is I'm not sure what else you want me to do. Um, uh, no, I, I, um, I, I agree with, uh, with um, the, the panel. I agree with particularly with what Ainsley said right now. The, 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 um, you know, I, I might try to be very clear in, in, in my comments, that, uh, and I said this at the beginning, I actually have no, no disagreement at all that precision medicine is very useful for discovery science. I have no disagreement that precision medicine works for rare disease and rare disease patients. And I was very clear about that. I, don't want to, I do not want to be misunderstood. I also, like Ainsley, I'm, um, I think I'm, I'm a skeptical sort of friend of technology. I have no difficulty with technology. Sometimes I'm misunderstood to say, I just don't like technology. It's not true. I actually like technology. Uh, my, my question is very, very simple. Is this, is there evidence that us investing all our resources, which essentially we are, um, putting all our eggs in this basket, really going to improve the health of populations, which is what I think we should care about. Not to the exclusion of everything else, we should not care about that to the exclusion of individual patients that uh, Chris is dealing with. I mean, you know, the, the world is, is sophisticated enough to be able to balance both. And the evidence is that this approach is not really going to improve the health of populations. Now, if, if precision medicine was promoted as a tool of utility to discovery science that can actually help us with rare diseases that we will build over time and figure out where it's going. That's one thing. And I think if, we, if that's how it was built, there really wouldn't be much point in having me on this panel. Um, but that's not how it's been built for the past, you know, 20 years. I mean, really, it's been, it's been since 1999, 2000, since the, the sequencing of the human genome. And I could go on and on with quotes from people in hype, but I don't want to bore you with that. Um, um, there is abundant so track record of hype that says that everything is about the genome and the genome and its related ohms, its cousin ohms, um, when in fact the advances that have improved our health collectively in this room um, have actually nothing to do with the genome. They actually have to do with my short examples about viruses. They have to do with, uh, with changes in risk behavior. They have to do with changes in the environments around you that have made you healthier. So your, and by your R, let's say R, gain in life expectancy over the past 20 years since this juggernaut started has had nothing to do with this juggernaut, which is where we've been investing all our biomedical research dollars. And, and I think that mismatch 
should be troubling to all of us who think carefully about it. I don't think it should, it's troubling to those who sort of think only about their own research career, and that happens to me in the Ohm species. But, uh, but s stepping outside of ourselves as part of the human species, um, I think this should be troubling. So, Sarah, what, can you give us any insight um, into uh, the genesis of the 100,000 Genome Project in the, the UK and why you think it's got such traction? Uh, I think there are many reasons. Um, I think it's attractive from a scientific perspective. It's very attractive from a political perspective to be you know, the first country to sequence at scale. Um, I think it's attractive in terms of data generation. So we, we have a very straightforward healthcare system, as you know, that the National Health Service covers the entire population. We don't have an insurance-based system, we don't have a state-based system. So it's quite attractive from that perspective. Um, I think at the moment it's very early to tell what the longer term consequences will be of the sequencing. Um, I think I'm maybe slightly less sceptical because I think we're very early in the journey and I, I think there's opportunity there that we need to realise and just look at the evidence, look at the clinical evidence, look at the economic evidence um, and then just make, make a decision about whether or not it is beneficial. Okay, okay. Go, go ahead. Because you asked something which... Um I seem to be, I seem to be under, I'm amplifying, um, uh, the, the, because you asked the question about why is it so compelling, and I agree with everything Sarah said, let me just add one thing. I think one of the reasons why, th why um, this approach is so compelling is because uh, we, and by we I mean people broadly writ, misunderstand genetics, uh, and I think it's because most people have a high school understanding of genetics, which is Mendelian genetics. So the idea that we can find a gene for things that are wrong with you is actually very compelling. I would like to find a gene for everything that's wrong with me. Um, um, the <laughs> truth is that, um, and it would be not just one gene, but uh, the truth <laughs> is that um, that's not how genetics works. So I've, I've often, I, I have provocatively tried to argue in, in fora that we should stop teaching genetics in high school. Now, I, 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 no, no, I, I, I understand, but I'm saying that just to provoke us because we are, what we're teaching students is sort of Mendelian genetics, and, and there's reasons for that, right? It's the yeah. foundation and the understanding is, well, people are then gonna grow up and do other genetics and become more sophisticated, but it's not what happens. People learn that, that there's a gene, that there's like dominant recessive, and the P becomes green or brown, and that's yeah. it. So then they got in the, into the real world, and all of a sudden we're told, hey, look, we can find a gene for you, and everybody's like, wow, that's great. I remember, you know, Mrs. Smith in high school, I really liked her, and she taught me about this. So I do think that there is, um, like, we, we're, we're sort of programming our society to, to think this is a good idea. Um, and, 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 and I think that's a real challenge. I mean, the answer to, um, just to go to Sarah's last point, I agree completely that this is early. I, I'm just not sure, like, how many decades is early. Like, like it's, it has been 20 years of investment in this area. So, so, so when do we recalibrate? Like, when do we as a society say, sort of, enough with the, with the large genomic cohorts and let's reinvest some of that money into things that actually might improve our health population? And I don't know. I mean, I think that's Ainsley's domain. That's, a, that's more of an ethical question. I, I just don't know when the tipping point is. Certainly, at the level of logic, I feel like we have reached a tipping point a while ago. Great. Well, that's a fantastic point to end on. I want to thank Ainsley, Chris, Sarah and Sandro for fantastic presentations and, uh, and discussion just now. So please join with me in congratulating and thanking them. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.